I'm Anthony Fowler. I'm Viola Judah. I'm Will Howell, and this is Not Another Politics Podcast. Anthony, you are back from the flood zone. <laughs> I am. We missed you this last episode. Tell us, you did you are you okay? <laughs> I'm okay. I don't wanna I don't wanna I don't wanna make it sound worse than it worse than it was. But our apartment flooded and our lives have been a little bit hectic for the last week, but everything is okay. Yes, thank you. And I'm, I'm sorry I missed dry. this episode. I think it's dry now and painted over. Things are dry and painted over. And and if there is another problem, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's leave it. Let's leave it well enough alone then. You've had enough of this. So as we ease into 2024, there's no expectation that major legislation is going to be passed because why it's an election year and a... A bitterly contested one at that. And then when we look back over the last year, boy, close to nothing was accomplished legislatively. There was a lot of drama coming out of Congress. But, but when you think about the production of laws, very little. There is a lot of attention to the structural preconditions for lawmaking, the, the kinds of conditions that facilitate the passage of major legislation. And people look at things like the incidence of divided government, the size of the majorities, the state of public opinion, whether or not the president is aligned with Congress, these kinds of things, whether or not we're at war. But there is this other literature which thinks about the capacity of individuals to advance proposals through a long and contested legislative process and tries to think about how I mean, the language they use, and we should talk about this, is how effective lawmakers are. But it's with an eye towards how people and how successful people are at advancing whatever it is that they choose to put before to put before Congress. That's a that's a hard thing to measure because we don't observe those things. We observe an outcome of a very complicated game that's being played in Congress, where it's not completely up to me uh, what bills are sponsored and what bills are being you know talked about in the in the legislature. And at the same time, I have a choice of sponsoring bills to some extent. So it, it's a complicated question, but one can still try to be a little bit modest and ask a question. On average, you know, what do we see happening in equilibrium? Do we see that women, for example, seem to advance more bills than men? Or do we see that moderates are more effective in that sense, that they advance more bills and advance them further than extremists? And Anthony, you talked to someone who actually uh, tried to answer this question and in a very, very ambitious way, because they didn't only look at the recent congresses, but also went way back and tried to understand how those quote-unquote efficiencies have evolved over time. I did. I spoke with Max Goplerud from the University of Pittsburgh, and he wrote a paper with uh, Fang Yi Chao, where the two of them have collected a lot of data and come up with a way to measure essentially the effectiveness of lawmakers. We'll talk more about exactly how they do that, but they're trying to measure which lawmakers in which periods were particularly effective. And the thing that's really exciting and ambitious about this project is they look over such a long time period. They go all the way back to 1873. Um, things in the present era, as you might expect, members of the majority party and party leaders and committee chairs, they have a lot of power and influence. But if you go back further in time, it wasn't always that way. And so some of the historical changes are really interesting to talk about. And we had a, we had a really fun conversation about that. So, so we're talking about your paper, Effective Lawmaking Across Congressional Eras. What is effective lawmaking and how do you, how do you measure it? I think there's sort of like 
a lay understanding of effective lawmaking that I think we think is all important, which is sort of the ability of members to sort of enact laws that make sort of important, meaningful changes to public policy. Exactly how you conceptualize and measure that in the details gets a little bit hazier and a little more contested. In the paper, we use what we think is probably the most sort of common definition, which is basically how well is a member able to advance their bills on important issues sort of either along the legislative process or into law. By there, we mean the ones, they're the sort of primary sponsor on it. And measurement, as, as the paper sort of gets into it, we think is actually the sort of really like interesting, complex part of it. And that traditionally what people do is basically you sort of look at the collection of bills that someone introduced and you try to figure out basically sort of how many did they introduce and some combination of how important they were and how far they got in the legislative process. And we sort of try to generalize that measure to be comparable over a wide historical period. We basically try to get measures of how much activity did Congress or maybe some media observers of Congress sort of focus on a specific bill. So for a specific bill, how many floor speeches were about it, how many hearings, how many reports, how many roll call votes, et cetera. And then we sort of synthesize those 12 different measures down to a single score of what we call notability, which is basically capturing to some extent how much activity did Congress or these observers put into a particular bill? How much sort of effort did they put onto this bill? Our measure of notability is some combination of like how far it got and how important it was, because you could imagine a bill, for example, that didn't get passed by the House, but had a huge amount of controversy, debate, energy on it. In some sense, that is important, and then it consumed a lot of people's sort of scarce time on the agenda, but it didn't necessarily sort of change public policy in a sort of particular way. But So it's important, maybe depending a little bit on how you conceptualize what importance means. And so should we talk more about what exactly we're getting? So we're trying to measure like which lot, which, which legislators are effective. What, the way we measure it is essentially, did you introduce a lot of bills that got talked a lot about where, you know, there were floor speeches, there were votes, there was news coverage and so forth. And I, I can imagine that one way that you appear to be effective is just, I mean, one way is that you have some important institutional power, like whatever Mitch McConnell says and does, that's going to get discussed a lot, regardless of whether he's particularly effective, just because he's in, in an important position. Another way is you, maybe you're just particularly newsworthy. Maybe, you know, you're AOC and you're really good at uh, generating polarizing headlines or something like that. And you're introducing bills that are really controversial and maybe those bills are never going to pass. But like, what exactly are we picking up here in addition to effective lawmaking? I think there's this sort of interesting question we thought a lot about of how do you think about a bill, for example, that consumed a lot of energy but failed? A Green New Deal bill. So some of this could be these bills are sort of setting the stage for future bills, right? You could think about that as being effective in the sense of you're doing something to sort of move discourse around policy, even if you aren't necessarily sort of pushing like laws forward. Because in a way, on the other hand, you probably don't want to privilege someone that introduces lots of little tiny bills to say rename the post office being super effective when these bills themselves are kind of pretty minor. So I think the concept of effectiveness I think can be a little bit sort of squishy in terms of exactly what you think about as being effective or not. Okay, great. So tell me more. So, so, so what do you do with these scores? So now we've got, you said you have a score for the effectiveness of every member of Congress in every, you know, in every Congress going back in time a long ways, going back to what, the 1870s, something like that. 
1873. 1873. So, so, so what do you do with these? What kinds of questions might we want to ask about, you know, for example, what are the correlates of effective lawmaking and so forth? What we sort of look at first is basically if you were to cut the sort of period we study from 1873 to 2010, based on what we think sort of major institutional reforms were through that period, do the determinants of who is effective seem to change? And we include what we think are a pretty standard set of factors, and we're focused probably most on sort of majority members being more or less effective, committee chairs being more or less effective, and what we would refer to as ideological extremists or people who are very not sort of moderate or near the median of the chamber. And we look at sort of those three factors and how they varied over time. And I think we're, we're mostly used to thinking about the current or modern era in Congress, where it certainly seems like the majority party has a lot of power. And in particular, the leaders of the majority party have a lot of power. And, and there's maybe not a ton of disagreement within parties, except although, you know, although we have these power struggles within parties and so forth. To what extent is that reflected in the data? And to what extent is that an anomaly of this current era? Yeah, so what we start with the paper is knowing this sort of an interesting puzzle, right? That this existing research mostly starts from the sort of mid-1970s onwards, which is a sort of a particularly unusual period in congressional history because there were these sort of reforms that sort of coincide with the start of that period, trying to sort of take power away from committee chairs and give it more to sort of subcommittees and sort of decentralize a little bit of some of the control. And reasonable expectation that people had going in is that extremist members would be less effective, that if you're really extreme, the bills you introduce are going to be pretty unpalatable and they're not really going to get sort of much attention. But it's actually pretty hard to find that sort of negative penalty or that sort of advantage for moderates in the data, at least what people have looked at before. But they do find a very clear effect for majority members being more effective. When we look sort of further back in time, the story sort of gets a little more interesting and changes quite considerably. Before, let's say, late 1940s, it's very hard to find this majority advantage that we all sort of expect to see from the sort of recent data. But we do find very clear evidence in this older period, at least certain parts of it, of the sort of benefit to being near the chamber median. So it seems like there's something about sort of these different periods that sort of different people are more able to be effective. Now, it's a little hard to pin down exactly what's going on in each of these periods because many different institutional things are changing. The nature of the like, agenda is changing. Parties' internal homogeneity is changing. But it seems like there's sort of differences as you sort of look across the broader sweep of sort of history. And why, so that is really interesting. And in some ways that does kind of comport with expectation. You would think if you just wrote down a standard model that the moderate members would be the ones that are proposing policies that are most likely to get discussed and passed and, and so forth. So may, I guess maybe the puzzle is why, why, does that, why is that not true in the current era? Do you have thoughts on that? I think what's sort of fun about this paper being a little more sort of descriptive in a way is that I could tell you potential theories, but they're all a little bit odd, right? So for example, we say, well, maybe it's because the majority is exercising their sort of negative agenda control, block these minority party bills, and that means the moderates themselves aren't sort of super privileged. But the majority effect and the sort of ideological penalty, both are actually existing in the sort of, in certain parts of the data, right? So it's not like they never can coexist. It's just they don't seem to coexist in this sort of reform period. No, I do find that to be really interesting. It's kind of, yeah. Um, and yeah, what, about the, what about the majority story? So you would, of course, expect that the majority party has more power. In some cases, they still have to, of course, get support of the whole majority. And 
They're super majoritarian rules. They sometimes have to get minority votes and so on. But you would expect the majority party to generally be more influential. Why, why do you think it was the case that that wasn't always true? If we go back in time, why is the majority party not always more effective than, than the minority party? So we sort of expected going in, or sort of the literature would sort of nudge us to expect that in one of these sort of pre-World War II periods, the period of sort of Speaker Reed and Speaker Cannon, that is thought of as a sort of early experiment and sort of a strong majority party, there should be this majority advantage. We don't really seem to see it there. What seems to happen to us is sort of after this sort of major reorganization of Congress in the sort of late 1940s with this Legislative Reorganization Act, that's when the majority effect starts to be very, very clear. So we sort of don't find it in a period maybe we'd expect, but we see it maybe a little bit earlier starting than we might think going on. It seems like something about the sort of reorganization of Congress coinciding with sort of the committee jurisdictions being streamlined, staffing being increased, decline of private bills, all again happening at sort of the same time. It seems like I wonder if that sort of is partially playing a role here. But this sort of lack of the effect in the older period is a little sort of interesting wrinkle to the story you might expect. Is it worth, yeah, let's, I'm just curious to run through some of the other possible things that might matter and hear your reaction. So it seems like you find committee chairs matter. If you're the chair of a committee, you're more effective. And that seems to be true in almost all of the eras that you're looking at. Is some of that a mechanical thing in the sense that the committee chair is just the person who happens to sign their name to the bill? Or is it in fact that the committee chair really is that more powerful? By virtue of being the committee chair, you get to, you get to push policy in your preferred direction. That I think we sort of expected, at least in every period, committee chair to matter. I think partially for the mechanical reason you're noting. I think the thing that we couldn't get into in this version of the paper, but we're trying to dig into more, is looking at sort of what committees bills were referred to. So trying to break out the score in sort of future research to see, are these sort of committee chairs advantage not only in their sort of jurisdiction where they are chair, but also in maybe other jurisdictions too. But I think it's probably not just mechanical. I think probably they do have some real power across all the periods we consider. And then you find that the party leaders, you know, the majority leader and minority leader, they actually appear to have less effectiveness, all else equal. Is, yeah, what, is, is that kind of a mechanical thing? Like, you're the, you're the Speaker of the House, so you don't put your name on the bills, even though you're essentially dictating what goes in those bills? Is that... Yeah, so I think the, the negative feature, I think, also is found in this sort of existing research. And that, to me, I suspect is a little more mechanical, right? That if you're majority leader, you're probably doing lots of other things besides you directly sponsoring bills as much. So I could imagine that your sort of energy is used elsewhere, which again goes back to the sort of potential trickiness of using direct sponsorship as the sort of measure. So I think that feels like to me a little more mechanical versus saying, oh no, they're actually not powerful. I think it's more that they're using their energy in other ways. And talk about experience a little bit. I mean, so it looks like freshmen and first-termers, they appear to be less effective in, in most eras. And in general, more experienced members of Congress appear to be more effective, although it's not maybe not as consistent across eras as you might expect. How does, what, what do you think is going on there? So I think this penalty to being a freshman you can make a lot of sense of, right? You're new to the chamber, you're learning your footing, learning how to write bills, you're learning the connections you need. So controlling for that, more senior people are in general more effective, though there's some variation there. But I think the thing that does seem clear is this big penalty for your sort of first term. We thought that sort of conceptually that might be sort of happening, so we've modeled that sort of separately. 
I just, I just want to go back for a second to the kind of, I mean, what I think of is probably the, the big finding that most people will remember from this paper is, um, you know, in the current era, the majority party seems to really matter. But that wasn't always true. You go back in time and it was really the ideological moderates that were the most effective and the majority party wasn't as important. You can modify that statement. What, what, can, what can we say about the mechanisms there? If somebody did want to go back to a world with less polarization and less, less power for the majority party and maybe the moderates have more say, what kinds of institutional reforms or things should we, would we think about to try to... I think it's a tricky question, especially because I think people talk about how Congress is very polarized now, and I think that's surely true. But also Congress has been very polarized at sort of other periods in the past, right? So I think what's useful about sort of our research is that it sheds some light onto the fact that polarization in Congress doesn't mechanically always lead to things sort of looking the same. Now, of course, lots of other things about the agenda, parties, heterogeneity, lots of other stuff is different. But I think we sort of show that different configurations at least have been historically possible. And it could be worth sort of thinking through, like, are there some institutional features in that period that we think might be good today? Okay, so can we, from the outset, get clarity about precisely what we mean by an effective lawmaker? When I saw the title for this paper, what I was thinking is effective lawmaking is lawmaking that does a good job of solving problems. An effective law about potholes is one that actually does a good job of filling the potholes. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the effectiveness of lawmakers to simply advance legislation. And it could be, I mean, they, they pay attention to whether or not it's important legislation. They have ways of getting at that or less important or ceremonial, that kind of thing. But it's just saying the ones who are more effective are the ones who are passing more or, or advancing more bills further down the legislative process. And if, if I can jump in, it's not only that we cannot or they cannot take a normative stance of whether this is force for good, but... You know, when I hear you speak and when I read the title, I thought that the paper would be about something that maybe it's normatively not good, but something that's like an inherent feature of a person. I have certain ability to advance a lot of laws and a lot of very, pop, very let's say, important laws, be it good laws or bad laws, but I have this inherent ability. But at the end of the day, what we are measuring is some combination of how many important laws I have advanced, which might be a reflection of my inherent ability, might be a reflection of my position, might be a reflection of just a Congress we are in, and many, many different things that I can think of. Yes, yeah, so they're measuring, they're, they're, looking at, they're looking at how many bills each member sponsors, and they're measuring the importance of those bills, um, the, you know, the notoriety of those bills, and so forth. If it's just naming post offices, that's not going to, that's not going to contribute a lot to the member's effectiveness score. If it's a bill that might have been on an important topic but didn't advance at all, like it was a crazy idea, and then after the after the initial announcement, nobody talked about it, nobody debated it, and so forth, it's not going to be an important bill. It's it's a, it's a, it's a high it's a substantively important bill that made it far enough down the legislative process that um, you know it got you know it got lots of news coverage, it got lots of debate time, and so forth, and and might have even been passed. And I'll, I'll defend the measure for just one second insofar as, yes, I mean, it would be nice to say this person passed a good bill. It would be, be, be great to say this was a bill that actually improved people's lives, or this was a bill that was a terrible bill that hurt, you know, 
That'd be great. That'd be very contentious to actually try to do that, to, to measure which bills were good bills and which ones weren't. But I think it's fair to say a bill that passes is probably a better bill than a bill that goes nowhere on average. And most bills go nowhere. And so just even whether or not the bill passed and whether or not the bill got a lot of floor time and debate time and news coverage is probably a reasonably good measure for was this a sensible bill that could have potentially passed, that could have potentially improved people's lives. It's probably not a bad, it's not a perfect measure, but it's not a bad measure of is this legislator actually putting forward policies that are important and could help people's lives rather than just grandstanding and, you know, making a big, you know, some big ideological statement that has that's probably not going to go anywhere. I'm surprised a little bit by your response, because in a sense, you're trying to defend uh, this as a measure of doing good. But I, I don't think that this is really important. Of course, you know, it's an important question to what extent we have uh, good, smart and productive legislators in, the, in Congress. But the question in the paper is effectiveness. Like, who is the person who ends up passing bills or advancing bills or having bills talked about? And that's a quantity that's interesting in its own right. I agree. And we shouldn't we shouldn't get stuck on, you know, on the words too much. But let me just say one last thing, which is by definition, a person who spends her career blocking really objectionable legislation. Not just I don't mean just sort of grandstanding or as a blowhard, but going out and saying, this shouldn't happen. This would not be in the nation's best interests. And that's the kind of effect that they have would be by this measure deemed ineffective. And that's kind of a curiosity. But, but, but we needn't get stuck on this. But I, I, think, I think it's important what you just said, that it is not a measure of power. Probably we'll go back to that when we talk about what their findings are. Like people who seem to be powerful uh, actually are not always the most effective ones. So it's not a measure of power. It's a really a narrow measure of this thing, which is how many bills of you know that are being talked about you have managed to advance to a later stage. One thing you could imagine wanting to measure is conditional on the same bill, like the same content. Suppose there was like a contest, like which legislator could get this crazy bill passed. Almost like we were, yeah, for fun, we'll just see which legislator is the most tactful legislator who's best at wheeling and dealing and so forth. It's definitely not a measure of that because we're not holding content, we're not holding constant the content of these bills. If one legislator happens to be extreme and all the bills they propose are extreme bills that have no chance of passing, they're going to be an ineffective lawmaker. In some sense, I think that's the right thing to measure. I think you could you could also be interested in just who's the best politician, who's best at playing the game of politics and getting a bill passed. But I think the I mean the more notable question is who's actually putting forward legislation that's likely to be passed and likely to impact our lives. I think we're probably more interested in that latter question is my guess. But they're certainly not just they're they're not holding constant the content of the bill. It's not a it's not who's best at playing the game of politics, it's who's the best at writing bills and also potentially playing the game of politics that are likely to that are likely to get passed and get news coverage and get lots of debate time and so forth. What is it that we are interested in? Like in an ideal world if we could have ideal data, what is this that we would like to measure? So, one possibility, imagine that you Viola are starting a party and you have a fixed agenda and you're trying to think about what's the strongest team of allies in a legislature I could bring on to board in order to advance that agenda. This question that Anthony raised would be the right one, which is to say some people simply have the skills and the knowledge and the wherewithal, and they'll do a better job. It's not clear that that's the question that they're speaking to here at all, not least because 
the bills that are introduced are introduced by are, are, are chosen by the individuals, right? It's all it's all endogenous. They and 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 if they see that this boy it would be great, I would like to pass this bill, but there's no way I could possibly get it through because I'm not up to the task. They won't even introduce the thing. Now, alternatively, you may just want to say, who are the key players? What are the characteristics of the key players who tend to be in our observable politics? The kind of um, movers and shakers, the ones who are who are out there introducing the bills. That, that stand the best chance of actually being enacted into law and having substantive content. And that's sort of more of a predictive exercise than it is uh, an effort to try to back out estimates of who has the essential qualities that will deliver for you if you're trying to build a team of, of legislators to pass an agenda. I agree with that. I think it's, it's definitely a descriptive paper that's just saying who are the people who are putting forward the bills that seem to be getting a lot of the attention and, and are much more likely to be passed. And I think that's interesting in and of itself. Although if I was building my own party, I also want the people who are good at writing bills that are likely to get passed and likely to make a difference. I, I don't just want somebody who's good at playing the game of politics. I want someone who's able to see, oh, this is the kind of compromise that could actually go a long way. That's a, that's a declining breed, I think, in, in Congress today, but, but I want those people around. That seems like something we want to select on. So if I think about who's an effective lawmaker, being able to write and identify the bill that's likely to pass seems like a big part of what I'd want to measure there. Yeah, I mean, in my example, I'd fix the agenda, fix the agenda, and then say, who do I want in order to pass it? And what you're saying is maybe you don't want to fix the agenda. Maybe what we wanted to do is to say, what's actually possible here? And that might lead you to select a different kind of legislator who's adept at identifying what's possible and drafting bills that make the most of that opportunity. But a lot of what I would like to have on my team is completely hidden from this measure, no? Because there might be people who never put their names on bills, so they are not associated, they don't have very high uh, score, but nevertheless, they are the ones who have those bills advanced, you know? They are whipping the votes, they are talking to other legislators behind everybody's backs, and yes, it might be a little bit helpful, but it might lead you to exclude a lot of people who are very important. I think that's a legitimate concern with this paper, which is, Influence is not just a function of whose name is on the bill. For some of the results, for example, which of them are more mechanical and which of them are more, you know, so committee chairs, for example, in all, all historical eras, committee chairs always come out as being pretty effective. And there's a question of, is that because committee chairs are in fact in a really powerful, important position, they're coming up with great ideas and they have a lot of power and they're getting stuff through? Or is it just that someone comes up with the idea and they go to the committee chair and says, hey, can you put your name on this? I'm sure there's probably some combination of both, but I'm sure there are things like that where we are misattributing some of the effectiveness and influence to some members and not others, just because of whose names happen to be on the bill. Probably the most effective lawmakers might be the ones that you don't see in the news a lot, but they're in the back room and they're telling, you know, Hakeem Jeffries and, you know, and Mike Johnson, like, here's what you should put in the bill. Here's what you shouldn't put in the bill. I don't need my name to be on it. But, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there are people like that. And we just don't have a good way of measuring that. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways that capitalism is and more often than not isn't working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, 
capitalism clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capitalism, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. So, what are the most interesting findings? Oh. Okay, can we before? No, so, okay. okay. So, <laughs> mm, yeah, this is a this is a loaded question in in no small part because the grand scope of this paper also makes it kind of unwieldy. I mean, we've got on, on two tables, but there are in play something like seven hundred and twenty-two thousand different findings that you could choose from to be able to say, "Here's the one I want to hone in on." Right. And well, I, you just, I, I you like that. I like that they did that in some way. It's honest, right? They said, look, we've got this great data. We've got these really interesting descriptive things. We're going to put it all out. We're, just gonna it all out. we're going to show you all the results. They didn't pick one of them and say, aha, this was the thing. We had a theory and, you know, and, and, and this was the test that we had in mind all along. They said, here are all these really interesting descriptive results. There's probably a lot more work to be done to test other hypotheses and tease out mechanisms and whatnot. But, um, but they're throwing it all out there. I like that. And it's, it's honest and it's transparent. No, I don't doubt their honesty, and, and, and certainly not their ambition. It's considerable. But let's take one. Um, let's let's lean into one, which is uh, the majority party effect. Mm-hmm. They show, consistent with a lot of other findings, that more what they uh, effective lawmakers are members of the majority party, but that that effect is big and significant in the post World War II period, and all but dif- disappears in the seventy years prior. What appears to be a robust feature of modern politics um, just isn't there to be found in a period when we also had parties. We had robust parties. Um, With a lot of polarization, too, right? A lot of polarization in the 19th century. For sure. Yes. I mean, so, yeah, and that's where then looking at the full 70 years prior, I mean, at, at, at mid-20th century, polarization wasn't so great, but at the end of the uh, end of the 19th or into the early 20th, it was quite high. And so, yeah, so... Ev- Regardless, we just don't see any majority party effect. That's as much as we have, right? So if they had honed in on that one finding, you, we could imagine a whole host of other regressions they might want to run in order to really investigate that finding, in order to sort of poke and prod at it, um, um, which they don't do because they've got, they're lifting up everything, which has its merits. But that's a striking finding. I don't know quite what to make of it, but it's a striking finding. So how, how is this even possible that we don't have the majority member effect, but we do have high party polarization in the early years. As far as I understand the measures of polarization, it sort of in a nutshell means that members of different parties don't vote together. So either it is because we somehow didn't have this strong majoritarian, um, super majoritarian requirements at the time, and it was easier to just sway one person or two people and advance a bill without actually having a lot of crossover across parties in terms of voting? Or what, what, are, what are the possible explanations for those two findings being true at the same time? One explanation is that polarization, we often refer to polarization as just the average difference ideologically between the parties. We could have high polarization, but also not have really high cohesion within the party. So there could be high polarization, but still the, the parties aren't necessarily voting as blocks with each other. And there could also be the leaders aren't really tightly controlling the agenda. So maybe there's high polarization, but we allow members of both parties to put bills on the agenda 
and, and take them up for a vote. And so sometimes the minority party member has a really good idea and we end up debating it, discussing it, and it turns out it actually was a good idea and it passes and so forth. But then you should observe that they are voting together frequently, which should decrease the measure of polarization. Not necessarily, right? It could, it could be, for example, that just a small number of the majority votes with the minority party and they pass a bill, even though, even though there's actually pretty, you know, pretty big ideological disagreement over that bill. But if the minority party proposes something that's moderate enough to get some majority party members to support it, and then the majority of the majority gets rolled, that, could, that certainly could happen. And that, I would predict that that would be more likely to happen when the Speaker of the House and the majority leader don't choose to tightly control the agenda. So in an era where I don't even allow the minority party members to propose a bill that's going to get any floor debate, that's not likely to happen. But if I say we're willing to hear their ideas, they can propose something and we'll take a vote, then the minority party can have effective lawmakers. So I would imagine that's a big part of what's going on, and it would be interesting if that's corroborated by other evidence. So we can read into the record some like findings that are not surprising at all, but they're robust and you would expect to see things like if you only serve for a very short period of time, your effectiveness scores are quite low. In your first year in office, on average, across the board, you're much less likely to pass stuff. Committee chairs, much higher across the board. These are things that would be sort of strange if we didn't see them. Um, and so they're sort of reassuring that we're capturing something important. There's one finding in here that I wonder if it's a challenge to another paper that we've talked about on this show, which is the effect associated with African-Americans in the House. They find that the legislative effectiveness scores for African-Americans is systematically lower. It's a big negative effect across the board, except for the most recent period, which goes back to 1995. And not so with women. There's some evidence here that shows that women are more effective on average and, you know, we talked about a paper on the show that, that the explanation for why women on average are uh, advance their bills further through the legislative process is because they face basic levels of discrimination that then lead to a selection of higher quality women on average that, and that that then yields this, offers an explanation for why we see higher effectiveness scores. The discrimination is decidedly there for African-Americans during this period, but the but we don't see the positive effect. Now, that may be that the discrimination carries all the way through into the chamber itself, such that, yes, a subset of African-Americans are able to get into Congress, but then they're systematically excluded even within Congress in order to advance their, their, preferred, their preferred bills. But at least it doesn't map on nicely to that clean story we were telling before about the effect for associated with women. I see the connection you're drawing. I think that's, I think that's interesting. But I guess I, I guess I don't know why you're assuming that the discrimination has to go one way for African American members of Congress. So it could be the case that we're seeing this negative association precisely because because the typical black member of Congress has gone through less electoral selection. So this could be exactly consistent with the Anzi and Barry story. There are a lot of majority minority districts that are not competitive. That are you know the vast majority of the Democratic voters are black. And the general election is not at all competitive. And so it is, it is in some sense easier to get elected as a black member of Congress than, than it is on average as, a, as, as another member of Congress, just because these are less competitive districts. And so we should expect on average lower quality going, coming out of these districts just because of that selection story. 
I don't know if that's the right story or not, but that could be an explanation that's perfectly consistent with the Anzi and Barry story. True, true. That would that would write the ship if you want to apply the story through. You'd say, even in the face of widespread discrimination faced by African Americans, when it comes to the electoral process within a subset of districts that are electing African Americans, there it looks very different. That's possible. I mean, so for me, this is an example of where we can tell any story we want exposed. You know, because uh, like if you look at w- women, for example, you. Again, the coefficients are all over the price. It depends on whether, you know, exactly what you're looking at, Senate or the House and which period. But, but you know, you can also tell a story about women might not be the type of people who go around and introduce beers and, and then like go on the radio and talk about them and try to advertise them. They might be more, you know, with an eye on the actual outcome. So they might be only signing onto a bill if they believe that they can carry it with high probability over the uh, passing uh, you know, bar. And, uh, and because the measure measures also the number of bills started and the number, you know, the number of times that the bill is mentioned in the New York Times and all this stuff, those might be the ones that, that are proposed by men. So you can really tell a lot of stories uh, uh, to explain any sign of the coefficient. And uh, sure, the coefficient, negative coefficient for African-Americans is really quite consistently negative. So here maybe, you know, that's like a, there seems to be some force there that, that seems to be stronger than other forces and persistent. Uh, but that's not really even true in the in the Senate. I think like this. Which, and yeah. while we are spinning stories... That, that's also consistent with my story. So in the Senate, in the Senate, you don't see it, right? And in the Senate, there's no majority black state that's electing senators. So the black, the black senators that get elected probably do have to be really good in order to get elected. But that might not be true in the House, where most black members of the House are coming from majority black districts where they didn't have to be especially good to get elected. But again, if they were so good for the Senate, then you should see a positive effect. You don't see a positive, you just see a null effect. So, and again... That might be because there are all these other things or the discrimination carries over to the interactions in the house. So I think it's harder for me to draw conclusions from this set of coefficients. And the freshman one, I mean, we, maybe we should reflect on that just for a second. So it sort of seems obvious ex post that freshman members of Congress are less, less effective. But it, it goes against this popular idea that True. Like, what yes. we need is to bring in new people to shake things up. Like we've got all these stodgy old yeah, members blood. of Congress who... Don't, can barely even remember their own names or find their way to their bathroom or whatever. And, and that's the problem. <laughs> and if only we had term limits and we got rid of the establishment and so forth, things would be better. But it seems like, no, like when you send in a new person, it's not like they come in with all these great ideas. You might think, you might think I've, got an, I've got 10 great ideas for bills and I'm going to write all of them my first year. And then, you know, and then I start running out of ideas as I get more and more senile as I, you know, get closer to the age of a typical senator. But that's, that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, the Mr. Smith goes to Washington idea doesn't really manifest itself, at least, at least on, you know, in the aggregate. And it's not just the freshman effect. Um, they also have a seniority measure. And it looks like the longer you've been there, at least for the modern period. Well, no, 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 no. For uh, sort of 1975 on, and then also from 1911 to 1940. Six, they see these in the house. They see these big positive effects. The longer you've been within the house, the the higher your effectiveness score, um, and then null effects otherwise. That seems to be over and above right. the freshman effect, right? So there's this big freshman effect, and then and then even additional years. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. But so, um, Viola, does this drive you crazy though? Like as the 
as the theorist on offer here, of we've got all these findings. <laughs> I mean, see all these basic patterns in the data over this long period of time. And are your insides screaming? Yes. Look, I think they have an amazing data. They've amassed an amazing data. And I think using their data, you can now start thinking more systematically and theoretically and, 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 and then use their data to test those predictions. The, the problem is, you know, the problem of what I just said is that I think if you think about the measure that they have, and if you think about the model where you can then get a measure out of the model, you can see how a lot of different factors are going to affect this measure. You know, yes, whether you have strong parties, what kind of equilibrium you are playing, uh, you know, a lot of different things. So I can see how one can write papers very easily, getting predictions, you know, any predictions. And then it's easy to pick those that will predict really the patterns that we are getting and say, haha, this is what must have happened, while, you know, something different might have been happening and it's just we didn't write that model. So so in that sense, I'm, I'm sort of super optimistic about the paper because it has a lot of data and I can see how one can now try to systematically study this theoretically and then interact this with the data. But on the other hand, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit worried that there are too many stories and too many theories that you can write here. And that's my bottom line. <laughs> I like that bottom line. I would, I, I, I mean, one direct, one response to that is it would, what would be bad is if people then made up a theory ex post having looked at these tables and then pretended they made it up before and then used this data to, to, to give support for their theory. What would be good is if they came up with a theory ex post and then they said, okay, here, I saw this interesting pattern. Here's a theory that rationalizes that. And then here's some new independent test that would you know, it could be either consistent or inconsistent with my theory. That would be, that's kind of the way things are supposed to go. So I'm not completely hopeful that that's exactly what's going to happen, but I think there's an opportunity here. This, this, I think this is a good kind of paper to write, which is to say, nobody's collected this data before. We're throwing it all out there. Here's what we found. There's some interesting and surprising findings, and that'll give people the opportunity to, to come up with new theories and then try to come up with new independent creative ways to test those theories, and we're going to learn more. And I'll, uh, I'll make that my bottom line. So I'm, I'm glad that they wrote this paper. And I, I, think we, I think we learned a lot from it. I agree. We got some really stri striking findings. Like uh, it need not be the only majority parties that get to, you know, that, that have influence and effectiveness in this way, even in eras of strong parties and high polarization. That's a striking finding. And I think that will, that will help us do a better job studying congressional politics in general and coming up with new theories and testing them and so forth. So I'm glad they wrote the paper. Yes, I, I agree with all that. Um, and I hope that there is a paper that's written exclusively on this majority party effect that might offer an explanation for why we would see a shift and that then generates auxiliary predictions that can also be explored with these data. In some ways, if that's, what, if that's the foundation that this paper is establishing for a literature, I'm all for it. The other thing that I'll say is in a prior lifetime, long, long ago, when I was an, a grad student, I wrote a a series of papers trying to measure um, the legislative productivity of Congress, along with Chuck Cameron and a number of other folks, and try to measure the significance of individual laws. It turns out that's a hugely taxing enterprise. And what they've done in this paper is way better and really impressive. And to be able to do it over such a long time period is extraordinary. And I too, at the one hand, it's, it's a construct that's measuring different things. It's measuring both how far bills go and how important they are and collapsing them all into one. But I can see a logic for doing that. And it also, one could naturally sort of disaggregate this measure in ways that would 
be useful as well. And so really interesting interesting findings for the questions that they raise. Uh, I'm not sure that it settles anything other than the kinds of correlates that we're accustomed to seeing in the last 50 years around which a literature has established itself don't appear to carry through for a longer period of time. And now the big question is why? Um, and that work awaits. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>